Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now, Hamlet, where's Polonius? At supper. At supper? Where? Not where he eats, but where he is eaten. A certain convocation of politic worms are eaten at him. Your worm is your only emperor for diet. We fat all creatures else to fat us, and we fat ourselves for maggots. Your fat king and your lean beggar is but variable service. Two dishes but to one table. That's the end. Alas, alas. A man may fish with the worm that eat of a king and eat of the fish that are fed of that worm. What dost thou mean by this? Nothing. But to show you how a king may go a progress through the guts of a beggar. Where is Polonius? In heaven. Send thither to sea. If your messenger find him not there, seek him at the other place yourself. Welcome to The Plays the Thing. That was Richard Burton as Hamlet speaking to Claudius, his father-in-law, the usurping king, advising him to seek the body of the recently slain Polonius, not in heaven, but in the other place. My name is Tim McIntosh. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Andrew Kern. And we're so glad that you joined us for Act 4 of Hamlet. We follow Act 3, maybe the most potent of all of Shakespeare's acts in all of his corpus, to what is probably his most cut and neglected act in maybe his, not probably not in his entire corpus, but it's what? one of his most cut. Yeah, it's cut and it's neglected a lot, Andrew. Come on. That's crazy. Why? 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 Yeah, why would they cut and neglect Act 4? It's, it's amazing. I mean, okay, you have to cut it to two hours or whatever, but why? Right, it's a practical four? reason. What? 
I said, that's a practical reason. That's not, yeah, it's not terribly interesting. You got to cut it down. Yeah. We would both acknowledge that you have to cut it down and maybe act for is the place to do it. Okay. You know, not to be out. That makes the whole play a lot clearer. (laughs) Okay. I think one of the reasons why it's cut is I'm just going to say it. Who cares about Fortinbras? Who cares about Fortinbras? What? Nobody cares. Should we care, Andrew? (laughs) <laughs> well, Hamlet, I mean, Macbeth, <laughs> Hamlet Macbeth, yeah, that's his name, <laughs> that guy, that I, that guy from Australia or whatever, Mel Gibson cuts it completely. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I do think that that's like, I think it's a different story without Fortinbras. I think How so? as, as always with Shakespeare, when you, when you have a fringe character who has a very minor role, he, he's key to understanding the whole play. So I, I, I think to, Okay, if you don't want to so go... So why is Fortinbras so important? Why is he so important? Yeah. Well, for one reason, because the whole point of the, the play is that... Not the whole point of the play. The whole deal that Hamlet has to deal with, the, the whole problem he has to deal with, is that he's the king of Denmark, and he has to somehow hand the kingdom off to a successor. And... Fortinbras is a is a young upstart from Norway, right? And he wants to he wants to take the kingdom. So so that context is important to the whole play at the very least. I agree. It is the big frame that it it captures the whole political turmoil surrounding Denmark. And in that way, it's important for the geopolitical, you know, for, for geopolitics, but nobody cares about the geopolitics in Hamlet. Nobody cares. Um, Hamlet sure does. Hamlet sure does. And it's a sign that maybe he's not as like whip smart about drama as we (laughs) thought he might be. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's, I think it's, um, (laughs) um, uh, liberal in the in the sense of not not um it's enlightenment thinking that would allow somebody to 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 think like that about a, a an heir to a king i mean the 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 uh the dealing with the foreign affairs is not an option it's at the heart and soul of what a king does so i mean but 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 that and that's why okay so so geopolitically let's just Let's just acknowledge, okay, the geopolitics are at least Fortinbras himself aren't that important. Whatever. Okay. I disagree. But even if that's the case, then Shakespeare's use of Fortinbras to stimulate, to, to, uh, to, do what, to, to do to Hamlet what Hamlet does to Claudius is very important. Because, because Fortinbras with his army crossing Poland reveals to Hamlet himself just as the play reveals to Claudius himself. And I will add just for fun that Fortinbras being from Norway affects the whole cosmological thing that's going on in the, in the, in the play. You want to explain on. on that? It's the whole cosmological thing that's going on in the play. Yeah. We've talked about that. Haven't we? Yeah. We talked about it in act two. Yeah. So, 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 the, so, so Polonius means the pole, right? The Polish man. And he represents Copernicus, the Polish astronomer. And Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are, are, are Danes 
and they represent Tycho Brahe, who actually had on the astronomer who actually had on his family crest a Rosencrantz and a Guildenstern. Did he really? Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and and then and then there was the. Now I'm forgetting. Darn it. Now I'm forgetting why the uh, Norwegian thing was important in that whole thing. That's bad. Important enough to keep it in the play. You're saying. This is, well, this you're is giving our argument. listeners an opportunity for further research, which I think is very important. So, <laughs> I, <laughs> Heidi to the rescue. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Heidi to the rescue. I think that Fortune Bros is important for a couple of reasons. One is anytime you have a danger from without to a, uh, a community or society that's already endangered from within, you add an element of pressure and you also add an element of ticking time, right? Which is why Hamlet and Claudius, they don't have the luxury of being able to kind of sew up their internal problems uh, over a long period of time because there is this encroaching danger. And so it adds an element of suspense, even though it's not necessarily conscious, uh, uh, or on the front and center of the plot, um, they're not like raising an army and and that kind of thing like they are saying Richard II and uh, some other plays. But I think just the kind of that that off the stage there is an, an element of pressure and uh, this ticking time bomb, so to speak, adds even more pathos to the interpersonal dynamics. Um, that's taking place on the stage. And it gives us a sense of there's something at stake. This is a kingdom being ruled. This isn't just a family drama taking place in the suburbs. This is, this is something with when the decisions have something at stake and we don't just have Norway and it's encroaching army. We also have the uh, diplomatic mission to England. So What's the deal with that? Why send Hamlet away in the middle of the play? Like this is my always been my big question about Act Four, is it feels a little bit to me like it's kind of like unraveling, like it's getting too complicated. There's these, you know, traveling, and then there's pirates, and then there's an army, and so for our for our for for our listeners, then what is the big deal with adding all of these kind of like separate plot points and travel and, and all that kind of thing. Tim, do you have any thoughts on England and Norway and all that? We've got to do something with Hamlet. He's just killed Polonius. He, Claudius knows why he knows that Hamlet knows that he's killed the King. And so short of killing Hamlet, Claudius has got to send him into exile. And so awesome. This is a great opportunity to send him into exile. And he's hoping that Hamlet will be done away with while he's in exile. But the trouble is, and again, okay, I'm arguing the case that we should like cut a lot of act four. I don't really, I mean, Hamlet is one of my favorite pieces of literature ever, 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 ever. So I'm arguing a little bit against myself. But the fact that you can cut lots of act four and nobody notices the difference is evidence that maybe it should be cut. Like we cut all of Fort and Brass in our performance. Cut all of Fort mean, and Brass. What do you mean by nobody notices the difference? People still love Hamlet and get as much out of it. No. I think people still can relish the fruit of Hamlet 
without hearing Fortinbras ever cross their ears? I, I'm, I, I would more or less agree with that. The very first experience I had with Hamlet, apart from Gilligan's Island, was the Mel Gibson movie. And as I said, he doesn't even do Fortinbras. So, you know, my, I loved the movie. I thought it was the greatest movie I'd ever seen without Fortinbras. But Heidi kind of rescued me there because she reminded me that what we're dealing with is, is what I'm going to fancily call a totality of dissolution. And it's not just totally an internal agree. problem for Hamlet. It's total. It's cosmic and it's international. And in that sense, if you don't have the England and, and Norway and Poland thing all going on, it's kind of like it's kind of like reading about Europe between the wars, especially Eastern Europe, right? The Balkan states. It's unbelievable reading about that stuff. It's a it's a it's an it's a inconsolable, unsoluble problem. <laughs> and and that's really weighed down. The other the other thing though is is the noticing the difference. Okay. There's there's a conscious noticing. And there's a degree of impact, let's call it. And I don't, I don't think the, the totality of the weight of Hamlet's experience can be experienced by the viewer without Act 4, right? Because what's happening, in a way, what's happening in Act 4, which is one reason I think producers want to do away with parts, is that the play itself is unraveling. And I know that with Shakespeare, you can't, it, this, it's really hard to make a case that Shakespeare deliberately designed it to unravel in Act Four, because all of his plays have a tendency to unravel at certain points, or at least to have, you know, inconsistencies. Nonetheless, I'm going to contend that in Act Four of Hamlet, Hamlet, Shakespeare rather, is making the play unravel. And he's doing it, it he's doing it because he's, again, he's trying to create this this totality of dissolution for the audience to experience. And the only thing that prevents the audience from entering into that is their willingness, right? It's, it's, it's always going to be, there's always going to be more dissolution in the play that you can enter into. And then like Beowulf going down to get Grendel's mother's sword, it's a very powerful experience. It's where you get the things that you need to, to solve the problem as it were but you have to go through this the, the lake with the bloody guts and everything to get there. Mm -hmm. Agreed. And we don't have, you mentioned the problem of succession, Andrew, which is, you know, as you always say, the problem of history and definitely the problem of kingship. Uh, that and, from Hamlet, actually. Claudius yeah. says so. And, <laughs> well, and Claudius was no dummy. He might be evil, but he's smart. Um, that we... We have to have some kind of solution to the problem of succession at the end of the play. And Shakespeare, he is writing a tragedy, but a Shakespearean tragedy always has some kind of arc uh, of restoration at the end of it, right? In, in resolving, say, the problem of uh, whatever the central problem of the play is, usually that has to be, if it's a tragedy, it's resolved in death. And in Hamlet, we have a stage, you know, littered with dead bodies at the end of the play, spoiler alert. Uh, and, 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 and so being that creates a vacuum within Denmark, and the whole point is of the play really is 
that something rotten is in the state of Denmark. And so at the end of the play, once that rottenness has been removed, once those weeds have been pulled up, is there any hope for this land, right? And we learn from Act One that Fortinbras actually has a legitimate claim to the throne of Norway and that there was a wrong done by King Hamlet to the, to Fortinbras Sr. And so at the end of the play, when we have, we resolve the problem of succession by passing on uh, Denmark. Uh, and in so doing, there's, there's a sense of healing of the land as well as a cleansing of the land, that there is now going to be an upward trajectory of growth. And that's why I think um, Shakespearean tragedies still have an, a very satisfactory ending because there's always kind of a loophole of hope at the end of each of the plays. And, and we definitely have that in Hamlet, but we wouldn't without Fortinbras. We really wouldn't. There would can just I, be a vacuum without him. Can I argue in favor of the vacuum? I think that actually... There's, I think the play stings more if we don't see Fortinbras at the end, if Fortinbras doesn't make it all better. And Claudius, I mean, we're just assuming that everybody knows how Hamlet ends. Claudius, Gertrude die, Hamlet dies, and Hamlet does not assume the throne as he ought and there's and we don't really know what's going to happen to the kingdom. Couldn't you make the case like you know what I'm saying is shouldn't you agree with me that the play is actually <laughs> like more powerful when it's left undone? Like because Hamlet's struggle is not resolved in this way that I I think when Macbeth dies and the rightful heir comes into the throne. It's so satisfying. Things have been set in order. But this is a play from the beginning. Um, I think that if it resolves itself with a different leader, it's a, I think it's actually a little bit diminished. Like, I think it's the way that like, it's supposed to end because that's the way that Shakespeare wrote it. But I think just ending with, with Hamlet asking Horatio to remember his story is to me, such a satisfying conclusion to this play that is just fraught with indecision, fraught with um, obstacles to the best man on stage not getting what he deserves, Hamlet. And the people who are guilty die. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern die. Gertrude and Claudius die. Gertrude is probably maybe not fair. Ophelia is certainly not fair that she dies. But even Polonius kind of a happenstance murderer at the hand of Hamlet. All that seems rough hewn and appropriate to me. Rough hewn. I uh, will hear that phrase again in Act Five. Do you feel like? I mean, I I do love this question. I'm just wondering if we should save it for next time and leave it yeah. dangling a little bit now. Yeah. Because, because we, we can do that, but I want to just make this comment that, that if there's a divinity that shapes our end, then there has to be a divinity that shapes the end of the play too. So it, it just, whether if you're looking for the most profound emotional impact, you may be right, Tim, I don't know. But if you're looking for the play to make the point that it's trying to make, then that's a different question. And is Hamlet, is, is Shakespeare, is he about having the most emotional impact or is he about? 
I think you, I think I just got to take it this point. I think you've made a false dichotomy that if this is about, we said earlier in Act Three that Hamlet asks its readers, asks its audience questions. It does, and I think that um, Andrew, you were keen to point out, it kind of gives either or kind of an either or choice, especially in the last scene with Gertrude. Hamlet says, look at these two images of these two kings. This was your husband, Hyperion's curls, you know, like a rule like Mars. Um, and then look at the guy that you married. You know, he's a clown and you married him. And, and the question forces, excuse me, Hamlet forces on Gertrude a question that she has to answer. And likewise, Hamlet forces on us a question that we have to answer. And I think that if it has divine purposes, which most most assuredly it does, then maybe Hamlet is actually more powerful if it's asking us those emotional questions and not resolving them for us. I think certainly in some dramatic works. um, Well, what's resolved though, apart from the fact that the throne is handed on? Beyond that, what's resolved? In the play that's written, what do you mean? Yeah. What's resolved? Right. Well, you, you said you, you said that that if it doesn't resolve it, then it has more of an impact. The resolve what? The throne is passed on. I think there's a sense of justice in Hamlet's plight. He kind of like gets justice in some way. Um, and you think it'd be better if he didn't? I think it'd be better if it's unresolved. I don't make this case very often. I I think Hamlet is one of those. um, I'm not making the case that like, yeah, the purpose of literature is to leave unresolved questions with the audiences. No, I think this is one of those instances where I think Hamlet is a little bit better if it is resolved. Crime and punishment is very well resolved at the end. It's a chaotic tale. I, I mentioned because it's one of my favorites also. It's a chaotic tale but at the end, there's a real resolution, both internally and externally for Raskolnikov that I find so satisfying. But I think in some ways, the irresolution of not having Fortinbras show up at the end and sew up the loose threads, I actually like it better. Hmm. It kind of forces, it forces, like, was Hamlet's quest worth it? I think Fortinbras kind of says, yeah, I think without Fortinbras, the audience is forced to say, I'm not sure. I got to ask myself yeah, that I, question. I, I'm not qualified to, to say one way or the other, but I'll, but I'll say that I don't think, I don't think in the play Hamlet, there's any shortage of despair that, you know, Hamlet, may, maybe Shakespeare realizes that the typical Elizabethan audience, if not the typical audience, needs some kind of closure. I don't know. Maybe it's a cheap, maybe it's a ghost in the machine kind of thing. If it is, he sure brings in the ghost early. literally. <laughs> well, we do have a couple of deus ex machinas in act four. I mean, the pirate ship, the, you know, mm-hmm. the, uh, there's, there seems to be an attempt to me, this, this ties in with both of your points. There seems to me to be an attempt in Act 4 that Shakespeare is reminding us that this is a public play as well as a personal play. There is something at stake in Denmark, and he never lets us forget that. This is a different story than it would be if this was a fam- just a family drama, right? And, and Fortinbras is 
kind of encroaching army and the uh, uh, and the embassy to England keep reminding us that that there's something outside of Denmark. There's something outside of the family. There's this is a public play as well as a personal play. And that seems really important to Shakespeare to, to that the audience does not forget that. That's a good point. And, and it raises a question about the, the Branagh version, because what he does is he takes the Hamlet's response to Fortinbras's army and the Polish army. Um, and he gives this great big speech about, isn't that where he says, my thoughts be bloody or they be nothing worth after that? I think so. Is, is that that one? So, so why, what, what else could have triggered that? really great speech <laughs> but but that the the challenge that 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 hamlet takes from it because as heidi says it's a public it's a public issue and hamlet i don't know i i've never thought about this question before so i'll toss it up do you think that hamlet does a better job thinking clearly when he's dealing with public issues as opposed to when he's dealing with private issues because he doesn't seem capable of resolving any of the private issues, but maybe with the public issues, it's easier for him. What sort of public issues are you, I mean, I'll be it. I understand what you mean. Like questions of rulership. This, this would be an example of a public issue. Can you, what occasions in the play is Hamlet thinking about public issues? Well, just the, the perfect blending of the public and private is this is a succession because that that's a, Mm-hmm. Right. That's a family public issue, right? And and that's part of Hamlet's problem is that he can't really entirely separate the private from the public ever, which mm-hmm. Laertes is aware of and points out about even when he wants to choose a wife, he can't. The, mm-hmm. the, the, um, the public has a voice in that, as it were. So so in a certain sense, every issue is public, right. but but at least a foreign issue is, shall we say, mostly public. A foreign affairs issue is mostly public, whereas a private, where, whereas the private court life, that's a blend, but maybe more private. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and in, I think it's interesting that in an act that seems to emphasize, re-emphasize us from the family drama into the public sphere and what's at stake for Denmark, that one of the things that happens in this scene, that in this act that's never, ever cut, no matter what production it is, is Ophelia's madness and death, right? Because that has a public component to it because she's supposed to marry Hamlet, right? And and it's that's accepted. It's encouraged. There's no there's no barrier to the two of them marrying, um, and except for you know them the barrier that's created by the the drama of the play. But in losing her, we now have lost what she brings not only to Hamlet but to Denmark, which is succession. Right, her death is a threat not only to Hamlet but also to the state of Denmark, because she is who's given to us in the play as a potential mate and mother of Hamlet's children, and then um, and to provide succession to the throne, which is something that Hamlet throws in her face in Act Three. Right? Why would you give birth to sinners? Right? Um, and so I think Gertrude that Gertrude raises again in five. 
Right, exactly. And so the emphasis on female sexuality is not just a private issue uh, in in the Middle Ages, right? It's a public issue, especially when we're talking about the mate of or the, the queen or the potential queen being the one to solve the she is the one on whom all the pressure to solve the problem of succession. Um, And so her sexuality becomes important in a public sense, as well as in a private sense. And that's taken from us in act four. Go ahead. I was just thinking recently how somehow they found this right to privacy in our constitution and, and much of our, much of our um, claims to freedom now are, are, are based on this right to privacy. It, and it's an inconceivable concept to the to this era. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know what it's an abstract notion that I don't know how I don't know what you can base on privacy. Actually, it's a convenient placeholder, as seems to me historically. The other the other thing that strikes me is the very first two lines of Act Four are really important lines. Um in terms of, again, Shakespeare teaching us how to read. Because <laughs> Claudius hears Gertrude, and she's sighing heavily after Polonius has been killed. And Claudius says, there's matter in these sighs, these profound heaves, you must translate, tis fit we understand them. And then echoing Hamlet say, where's your father? Claudius says, where's your son? Mm-hmm. But, but there's matter in these signs. In other words, what you're saying has me, well, there's these gestures that you're making have meaning and I need to know what they mean. And, and throughout the whole play, people are sighing, right? But their sighing matters and, and in both senses. There's profound heaves. They're, they're heaves that have profundity to them. And what we're trying to do in the, Ham, in the play Hamlet is figure out the meaning of these profound heaves. And, and, I, and I wonder... I wonder if I just went down a, rap, a, a different direction or if that also relates to the whole question of Fort and Brass and, and all that. What, what is, here's a profound international heave, right? It, what's the meaning of it, right? Mm-hmm. The, 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 and and it, it, t, t, you must translate. Tis fit we understand them. That's kind of the audience speaking right there. You must translate. Or a teacher talking to his class. You must translate. Tis fit we understand them. You just wrote this essay. <laughs> these profound heaves, <laughs> these sighs, you must translate. Right. I think that's good. And also significant that the very next thing that happens then is that Gertrude betrays Hamlet to Claudius. That's your interpretation of, of these profound heaves. I'm not sure I buy that. Let's go on. Well, go hold on. Let's, let, can you, can you make the case, Heidi, what do you see? Um, I think I lean toward you on this one, Heidi. Gertrude betraying Hamlet. Absolutely. And I I th- I think that well what we just had, the last scene in three, act three is Hamlet confronting his mom. And up until then, Gertrude does not know about the murder. Right? Possibly. Possibly. We think, right. Yeah. We think. Right. Either way, if she does know about the murder and in that scene, it makes what she does even worse, in my opinion. Either way, she either didn't know or already knew by the 
in the final scene of act three when hamlet confronts her and she says to him what do you want me to do i'll do whatever you say and he tells her don't go tell claudius about this conversation and don't go to bed with him and the very next scene she's telling everything to claudius why do you mean everything why do you say she's telling everything Okay, let me let me respond by saying this yes. is my thesis. She tells the absolute minimum of what she can tell, which is all the obvious stuff. There, there's nothing that she reveals that isn't public knowledge. So how do you interpret her actions in this scene? Confused, but possibly, possibly I think it's, she, she might be, she might have, tra- she might have been converted and repented. Okay, if she did, then now she's spying for Hamlet. Now, she, now she's on his side. Okay. And the, there's indications from this point forward that she is, and that now she has to get information from Claudius to the extent that she can. So she's only saying, in my view, possibly, she's only saying things that are publicly known, right? How, how is your son? Oh, he's mad. And he, and he killed, he killed, um, he killed Polonius. Okay, that's not public knowledge yet, but there's no way to hide it. There's, right. there, there, so, so let's get it over with. Let's just say it. That's interesting. Here's what I'm really liking about our conversation between the three of us so far is that with all of the action in Act 3, which is the last act we recorded, obviously, it's, it's relatively straightforward-ish, right? Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. here we have act four and multiple different interpretations, even amongst the three of us for an act that we started out by saying, hey, maybe it's not even necessary. Right. So to me, that tells us that this is a really important act that increases the the mysteries and the contemplations, and is exactly what you just said a few minutes ago, Andrew, like the this is the bottoming out, right? This is where it starts to unravel. And uh, when we start to see kind of the chaos that is coming from those high, those, those turning points that happened in act three. And now we have like, oh my gosh, it's all falling apart. And we, we find we're interpreting it even as careful readers and um, audience members very differently. It, it is interesting. Like I, I feel like during the first three acts, we might see certain motivations differently. You know, there might be a few variations of interpretation, but in this act already, and I suspect if we went deeper into it, the disagreements in this act would be much more substantial than the previous three acts combined. And maybe to your point earlier, Andrew, when you're saying um, maybe Shakespeare kind of like deliberately wrote an unraveling, maybe this act is a deliberate unraveling. It's entirely possible. Um, and, it's, and it kind of echoes this, this problem that Hamlet is facing in his own mind. Right. Like he's, he's starting to unravel himself and maybe act four is like kind of like this global unraveling of the, of the plot before until he returns to the beginning of act five. And then we kind of regain the narrative and it's going to send us toward a resolution. And, and, 
And if that's the case, then ha- then Shakespeare is so ingenious and meta. Two comments I would make, though. One one is that, or not though, but what two comments? One is that there are people who believe that the journey to England is Hamlet's un- is analogous to Hamlet going to hell and coming back, like it's, it's his death scene and resurrection. I'll just throw that out for a moment. The second thing I would say, though, is that this degree of of instability and tension that Shakespeare and Hamlet are both creating is uh, the unraveling of the play is not something that if you've never read Hamlet or you've read once or twice, it's not something you should probably go for, right? You, you should, if you've only, if you're only in your second or third or fourth reading of Hamlet, or if you have to act it, you probably should interpret things and settle on something. But oh, then yeah. having done so, you should allow yourself then in your next read to challenge what you concluded this because it can be very it can be totally destabilized. Yeah. You can you can feel like you're reading Nietzsche instead of Shakespeare. Yeah. I feel the same way about Lear a little bit. I think Lear's yeah. a little oh, bit. Yeah. But act four, it starts to really unravel. And then it's like then we get back onto our plot in act five and it's resolved. And I think it's interesting that both of our main characters in Lear and in Hamlet are both wrestling with madness. With Lear, it's more of a senility than it's um like an epistemic rupture like it is for Hamlet. But still act four feels like it's mirroring their inner state in some way. And I think like having done it twice, Shakespeare having done it twice, I just wonder if it is intentional, you know, makes me think that it is intentional. So the play mirrors the inner state of the actors. That's, that's go on about. Well, it's a very dangerous thing for a playwright to do because if it does come completely unraveled, Great. You've made a, you've made a wonderful um, artistic leap and your audience has left. Like who's going to pay attention if it completely unravels, the audience is not going to stay. They're just not. So I think that's the real risk that Shakespeare ran. And I think he pulls it off, but I also think he's walking a tightrope both in this act and in act four of Lear. Both in both plays, the play threatens to come undone. Okay. Okay. Hold on. Can I just like go on a, a, a complete tangent here? Yeah. I, I have this theory that certain real masters. Wait a minute. Are you trying to now enact what Shakespeare does and just go like. No, 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 <laughs> no. I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay hopefully somewhat rational. Oh, Um. John Coltrane, I'll use him as an example, like one of my favorite musicians. He hits a point in his work in the late 60s, like there's an album called Sunship, and it is crazy time. It's crazy time. And right before Sunship, you know, like five years before Sunship, he does um, A Love Supreme. Like maybe it is the best jazz album of all time. It's certainly like, in the argument. It's absolutely sublime. It's so good. But Sonship, however many years later, I think that he kind of got, um, he was pushing the envelope on the form of jazz and he pushed it so far that it actually broke. It actually Mm. broke. And his stuff is unlistenable. Okay. James Joyce. I'm going to listen. James Joyce is another example. I mean, Dubliners is as good as it gets. 
it's as good as it gets. Is like the short story farm Dubliners is absolutely magnificent, and he keeps pushing the form, and he keeps pushing the form, and Finnegan's Wake is something that's like on the far side of illegible beyond even like Ulysses is. So I even like would make the case with some of um, Bob Dylan's stuff. It gets so wacky that I think these masters really like they pressed the form so far that it actually broke. And I think Shakespeare, (laughs) I think Shakespeare in act four of Hamlet and in act four of Lear is like, he's really late in his career. He is the master. He knows the forms. And I think he's actually pressing the forms to their breaking point. And I think he just barely pulls back, just barely pulls back. Otherwise we'd be like, otherwise it'd be, like Sunship. That's the, really interesting. The John, the John Coltrane album, Sunship. It may be worth pointing out that Hamlet is a variant on the name Hamnet, who had was his son that just died. Like two years before the writing of I Hamlet? I it was that? a year yeah. or two before, yeah. And, and you know, the, the, he probably called his son Hamlet sometimes because there just wasn't, the, the names were interchangeable as I understand yeah. it. So, so, that, so, so maybe what we're seeing here in, especially perhaps in act four is, is a father's grief pushing, pushing to the very edge of artistic form. Maybe so. Yeah. Maybe so. Maybe that's what Elliot meant. That it's an maybe artistic Elliot failure. Pardon? That it was, a, that Hamlet's an artistic failure. Yeah. Maybe, maybe he thinks that Hamlet does break the form. Maybe it's sonship to to Elliot. Yeah. Can I tell you guys this? Did I tell you guys the story about um, the scene in Act Four when we were performing it? I, I don't think I've told it on the air. If I have, our poor oh, listeners are going to be subjected to it twice. What, what scene? Uh, scene three. So the first three acts of four are basically a a chase they're tr- everyone's trying to find hamlet where's hamlet he's he's killed polonius where's polonius's body find hamlet so they finally find hamlet in act 3 and at this point hamlet um it seems like he has developed a willingness to confront claudius that he's not been willing to show thus far in the play and i'll just read he has these wonderful insults Polonius keeps asking, where's Hamlet? And he, Hamlet, excuse me, where's Polonius? And Hamlet quips with them. Um, He's at dinner. What do you mean he's at dinner? Not to eat, but to be eaten. The worms are eating him. And Polonius is getting upset, more and more upset. Where's Polonius? Hamlet, in heaven, send thither to see. If your messengers find him not there, seek him in the other place yourself. So it's a great insult. It's just a great insult. When we were playing Hamlet, the guy who was playing Claudius, I was really pressing him. Like I was mugging at him when I was saying these lines. And so this one night, maybe halfway through our run, you know, like maybe we'd performed seven times. I say in Hamlet, send it to sea. If your messenger find him not there, seek him in the other place yourself. And the guy who played Claudius, this is like one of the best things that's ever happened to me on stage, pulls back and slaps me across the face 
like wide open hand slaps me across the face. Heidi, did I tell I feel like I've talked about this. Maybe I've told you, Heidi, have I talked about this? Not on the Maybe air. It's too soon. You've not, not on the air, it's just like air. off the air. I mean, like snot flies out of my nose, Andrew. I was totally, I knew that I was actually kind of like, he was getting irked. And so I pressed it even harder, maybe harder than I should have. Slaps me, snot flies across the stage. I lose my lines. I kind of get my lines back. I patch something together. And then Hamlet goes off stage in our production. He goes off stage for a little while. So I go back and I'm like, oh man, finally I get a rest. I've been on stage for two straight hours, you know, talking two straight hours. The guy who plays Claudius comes off stage and he finds me and he says, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I don't know what came over me. I'm so sorry. I just slapped you in front of everybody. And I told him, I said, I swear that's one of the greatest things that's ever happened to me on stage. Like it was like absolutely real. And every night after that performance, I would say those lines, seek him in the other place yourself. And I was like, he's either going to slap me or he's not going to slap me. I don't know what's going to happen. And about every other performance, he would just slap the snot out of me, but he always kept me guessing. I never knew it was going to be. It was wonderful. It was so wonderful. Oh man. Oh yeah. It was great. Um, (laughs) Hey, let's return. Did he send you to England? Yeah. Then he sent it to England. He did. Um, I I have a question. We, we opened the play. We, excuse me. We opened the podcast with some of the lines from Ophelia. Our poor Ophelia is, is losing her mind. She's maybe lost her mind by this point in the play. And she's going to lose her life by the end of this act. Um, There's a question that is like often debated about this play. And I think there's evidences of both sides. And I'd like to start with you, Heidi. Do you think that Hamlet and Ophelia uh, slept together off stage? I do. Do you have a, do you have a, you do think so? I do think so. But it is a very debated point. And as Andrew pointed out, kind of the, the, um, it's fun to pick a side on a debated issue in the Shakespearean canon, especially one that is easily debatable from the other side, right? Like, so I think that this is one of those that this is one of those issues that I'll take a side. I'll pick a side. I think they slept together, but it is ambiguous in the text. It is not clear. It's not settled for us by Shakespeare himself. But I think that that accounts for her madness. I think it accounts for Hamlet's ambiguity about her, why he doesn't find her comforting and why he finds her threatening. And with his uh, kind of tormented inner dissonance about his mom, like you would think he'd be able to turn to her for comfort in that. But if she, if he has taken her virginity and, and he's, he's struggling with her femininity. That makes more sense to me why he would be so hard on her. Um, And then I think that there's a lot of evidence in her uh, uh, wandering mind in act four uh, in her speeches that she is as sexually disordered as Hamlet is um, and that she's hurt in that way by him. Yeah. What do y'all think? Andrew, do you have a conviction on this one? I think the strongest content, strongest specific text is what Heidi said when she's singing. And it's in my, in my copy, it's Act 4, Scene 5, Line 47, I think. 
but it's where she's singing this song. Tomorrow is St. Valentine's Day, all in the morning be time. And I am made at your window. Of course, made as virgin to be your Valentine. Then up he rose and donned his clothes and dupped the chamber door, let in the maid that out a maid never departed more. And so there's that sense of um, the song is, is, is potentially a confession. It's certainly, it's certainly a song about how stupid it is, it, especially perhaps, no, I'll just put it this way, how lacking in foresight it is for a girl to sleep with a man before she has a vow. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so, so the argument always was, and this was what I was taught growing up. Even, well, the, will you still love me tomorrow? Right. The, the pop song, will you still love me tomorrow? I don't think they ask that question anymore. So at the very least she's, she's singing a song about females being a female giving in and losing what, what power she had before she gave in mm-hmm. making herself powerless at the very least she's singing about that. She might also be confessing. So I don't, I don't have a strong opinion. I'm inclined to think that if, if they had slept together when Hamlet is tearing himself to pieces, for example, in act four, scene four, and he lists all the reasons he's got to act he would have probably said something uh, about this in some way, perhaps. Um, so Shakespeare does a really good Shakespeare does a really good job of of not being conclusive, but being very suggestive. Mm-hmm. Right, which is smart on his part because if he makes it really clear, then you're going to lose, he's going to lose some of his audience, any kind of sympathy that they might've had for her uh, is at stake if he makes it even more clear. Um, So there's, I think, some ambiguity uh, that's necessary for, uh, for that relationship. Um, Yeah. Especially if you think back to what Laertes said to, to Ophelia, like in that, in that era, you get this in much ado about nothing in the, in that era, for a female to lose her virginity wasn't wasn't just a, um, you know we think of a, well back in the seventies at least we still thought of a girl who who gave her virginity easily as promiscuous. Um, it's not just that in that era. You're you're breaking down the order of society. There's property rights. There's claims that the community has on this relationship. We're talking about a princess potentially. We're talking about a queen potentially. So there's so the, the implications here. Again, it's the public and the private. And you can't in that in that setting, you can't separate the public from the private. It's pre-enlightenment. And it's not obvious that we can say, separate them now. In fact, if I may just push this a little bit further, it's almost like we're living in act four as a world today because we, we've taken we've taken the forms and pushed them to, to the breaking point. And now having individualized sexuality and made it a totally private thing, it now dominates our political discourse. So that's a very interesting, Hmm. that's a very interesting shift. (laughs) Maybe, maybe sex really isn't as private as we think it is ever. I agree completely. And I, I think that the pathos of having these two women in the same room, in the same scene, 
uh, when the, it's the queen who's mm. called to comfort Ophelia and to figure out what's going on and to get to the bottom of it. And in some sense, if you get to the bottom of what happened to Ophelia, you're going to find Gertrude, right? Mm. And mm. that is, I think, a really wow. important... What do you mean by that? Because I think a lot of what happens with Hamlet and Ophelia is about his disordered relationship with his mother right now. Um, and his, uh, like I, I made the case in our last podcast that he is so, there's this internal dissonance in Hamlet because he's reckoning with what his mother has done sexually. And then I think he's taking a lot of that rage and confusion out on Ophelia, which ends up driving her partly is partly responsible for her death. Um, also, you know, the, the thing that's kind of put in our face in the play is she's confused. She's, she's grieving her father, right? Polonius's death because yeah. Polonius was killed. Her father was killed by her lover. Right. And, um, and so that, is that's trauma enough. Uh, So in a sense, Ophelia and Hamlet, you know, they've both lost their fathers to violence and murder by someone close to them. And they're both being driven to madness in their individual ways. And they could come together and instead they're pushed apart. And the ultimate finality of that is Ophelia's suicide or accident. Another ambiguity in the play was, and I'm just going to call it a suicide for the sake of like consistency of terms. Maybe it, maybe it was an accident of all of the people in the play, not named Ophelia, who is most responsible for Ophelia's death? This is a question I always ask when I teach this play, whose fault is it that Ophelia dies? And you get, you know, for every student in the room, you get a different answer. It's Ophelia's fault. She made the choice for herself. It's Hamlet's fault. He betrayed her. It's Polonius's fault. He failed to father her. He used her as bait. And now he's, you know, Mm. reaping his just reward. It's Gertrude's fault because she, you know, like there's, as you know, I can't remember if it was in this episode or the last one, uh, Andrew, that you used the phrase infinite regression. Um, and you know, infinite's too strong of a word, but there's a myriad of regressions in this play, uh, for whose fault is something, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Ophelia's death is kind of, I think, the convergence point for that. The, it's the ultimate consequence that we have until Act Five when everybody dies in the end. But even that, there's there's a whole lot more um uh, agency in those deaths than we have in Ophelia's. And she's she's a scapegoat and a victim throughout the entire play. What is she responsible for? Um, is I think one of the big questions of the play. And some people feel very sympathetic towards her. Some people feel like, you know, get up, girl, stand up for yourself. You know, these these kinds of things kind of converge in Ophelia. Is Ophelia in a way experiencing the same thing Hamlet is experiencing in terms of her whole world Hmm. at all the different dimensions collapsing. And so, so um, maybe not at, maybe not at the philosophical cosmological level, because there's no indication that she thinks about that stuff in the play. Mm -hmm. Although maybe she and Hamlet chatted about it, but, but boyfriend, father, mother's gone, brother, you know, social order, promise of a future, potential children, um, all, of, all of the different patterns of her life seem to be collapsing on her. 
and all of the people that she ought to trust and all the ideas that she ought to be able to rest on her gone. So, yeah. so in a way she's, she's experiencing the same cult total to, 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 what did i call it totality, totality of dissolution, of dissolution. Yeah. well much is made of laertes as a foil to hamlet but i think ophelia is too um and it's it's they should have been brought together right they could have become equal partners through it and that's that never happens it never materializes and and that's kind of left dangling i think in the play hmm. she isn't she's a really interesting her story is a mirror of Hamlet's in so many ways. Infinitely sad. She, she's, she's not an agent like Hamlet is. She's more of a right. patient, I think. Right, right. And you wonder, should she be an agent? Or, or that's why I asked the question, because I'm, I'm, I'm inclined as a modern to think, well, why doesn't she stand up to her dad or whatever? But, but could she, right? The, is is the social order that she she feeds on and lives on that nurses her is it so broken that her death is inevitable and then she decides that the strengths uh what's it slings and arrows of outrageous fortune aren't aren't worth there, there's no way she can take arms against the sea of troubles and by yeah. by opposing on them so she, she either kills herself or is careless enough to to die and is out of her mind in any case. Yeah. If the play ended on act four, would we think of Hamlet as a hero? That presumes that we think he's heroic at the end of act five. Right. I was about to say, I think the question of Hamlet's heroism is, uh, a really, really interesting question. One of the most interesting questions in an absolutely fascinating bottomless play. Like what do, what are we supposed to make of Hamlet and what do we make of Hamlet? Right. What is, is, is he any different from Claudius? Um, one thing that, that Andrew, you've brought up several times, that's really important, I think, is his is Hamlet's sense of responsibility within the public sphere, right? He knows he's supposed to be the king that's been taken from him, and he, he takes that very seriously. But one thing that Shakespeare seems really, really careful, very careful to like, is, is he, there's no evidence in Hamlet's uh, conversation and the words that we get from Hamlet that he's ambitious like Claudius and he's just trying to get the throne back, right? Like, I think Shakespeare is really careful to make sure that we know that, that, that him trying to make things right is a nobility of mind issue, not an ambition. Like he sees Claudius as a rival to the throne, but we do know that he takes his responsibility as the heir very, very seriously. And he is thinking in terms of the public. And I think one thing that that does for us is it gives us a sense of his superior moral superiority over Claudius. But does that mean that he's a hero? Different question. Mm. I love that. One of the things that seems to me really important in the Christian cosmology is what we call the uh, patriarchal hierarchy. Is that what we call it now? I forget. But the, the notion of hierarchy. A false humility is a humility that that says, oh, I'm not up to it. I'm nothing. I'm nobody. I, I'm just I'm such. Oh, God, I'm such a worm. Step on me, God, and watch me squirm. You know, that that kind of 
that kind of smallness of soul. Yeah, yeah. And and a true humility. So a false humility would lead to a king saying, oh, I'm not fit to be king. And so then he just flees from the he flees from the responsibilities. But a humble king would look at his his position and say, this is this is my position. This is where I've been appointed. This is my responsibility and duty. A humble a humble prince would say, it doesn't matter if I want to do this or not. This is this is my duty. A humble teacher would say, this is my duty. I, I, I'm not here to, I'm not, I, I have to exercise authority over my class because I've been given that authority and I don't have the right to abdicate, right? That, and that, that sense of not having a right to abdicate is noble and humble at the same time. And if Hamlet is a hero, um, it's probably not yet at the act of, at the end of act four. But if he is, it's, be, it's because even though Ophelia says, oh, what a noble mind is here or thrown, there's still something in Hamlet that is noble and it's just trying to find its expression. And again, you talked about foils before, Heidi. The foil for this issue would be Laertes. Because, Tim, when you first asked the question, is, is Hamlet a hero? My first thought actually was, if there's a hero at the end of Act 4, it's Laertes. Because Laertes acts. Yeah. Right? He, does, he right. does something. He acts heroically, you could say. But the problem with that is he doesn't act nobly. He doesn't act humbly because he's not, he's not taking on a responsibility that he's been given. He's, he's, he's trying to avenge without information. He's trying to, um, he, he's, a, he's a force for destabilization, right? And I think, I think that makes an, an, a vast, an, um, I, I, it might even be that that's what's dissolving our culture is that sense that we don't have a space for a noble mind that can be humble. We don't have a means by which a person can, can, can well, we do because nature does, but we don't, we don't honor the noble mind that takes on a responsibility and all the weight of that without trying to extend it into more than it is through ambition and without abdicating it through fear. Right. I mean, my inclination whenever I'm given responsibility is to, to find some way to abdicate and get somebody else to look after it. Right. But, but there's a nobility in simply being what you are appointed by God and nature to be like, for example, a father, right. I have, I, I think of this in terms of rights and duties. I have the right to raise my children for one reason and one reason only, because I have the duty to, right? I don't balance my rights and duties. I get my rights from my duties. And so duty precedes right. That's that when you, as soon as you balance them, you can do away with one and keep the other. And that's that I think Hamlet and Laertes are, are, are foiling each other on it is, is the question of who has the right to the role of king of, of Denmark and is it an act of humility or is it an act of ambition to seize the throne? And is it, and, and what's the best way to do it, right? That's, what's, that's something we are all always trying to deal with in a, in a micro scale, right? Because every day is a new negotiation with our children about who's queen and king, right? But the, but the, the play is putting that in this big scale. And I, I don't know, I don't know if there's a hero at the end of Act 4. To me, a hero has to be noble and he has to be humble in the sense of 
he's in his place and he's fulfilling his responsibility. That is ambitious nor abdicating. That is one of the things I think that's hard about reading Hamlet today is that I, I would argue, and I will argue at the end of five that he's heroic. And I agree with you, Andrew, part of his, a great portion of his heroism is born out of the execution of his role. He's the son of a wrongly abdicated ruler. I think it's hard if you don't, if you don't admit um, the kind of ethical content of inhabiting a role. Like if you can't, if that's not part of like your ethical understanding of the world, then it's hard to understand Hamlet as anything other than um, kind of a misfit, a brilliant, a man who cannot passionate, make up his mind. Yeah, a brilliant, passionate, confused <laughs> man. And in that way, we can identify with him and say, "Oh, I love Hamlet. I I see, I, I see the humanity in him, and I recognize that his humanity is like my humanity." And so we can admire him in that way. But I think it's an. I don't think that you can call him a hero unless, as you were just saying, Andrew, you have some understanding that. Um, being a good person is fulfilling the roles that you have been, that you've taken on, whether it be mother, father, president, son of a deposed king. So we'll see. It'll, it'll be fun to revisit this question at the end of five and see whether or not he does kind of fulfill that role, son of an abdicated king, in an appropriate way by the end of the play. That'll be one of the questions I think that'll be enjoyable to talk about. I agree. Well, and I think it's important with Laertes, who is presented as a foil of Hamlet for sure, uh, and a man of action. uh, And he schemes with Claudius, who is also a man of action. And Claudius is the villain, right? And they come up with a pretty underhanded plan to get rid of Hamlet, poison the mm-hmm. sword, right there. It's not like sailing in on a white horse and you killed my father, prepare to die. Like, it's not that it's a, it's a sneaky underhanded plan. Um, and, but in some ways, Laertes has the luxury of a private citizen that Hamlet does not have. Mm. Uh, he can avenge his father nobly, without and die in the attempt without then costing the kingdom anything uh and that's different from hamlet and um he also is not as thoughtful as hamlet um he says he even says at the end of the act very intentionally he says i would kill him if he was in the church right which is exactly why hamlet didn't kill claudius yeah. because he was praying in church and laertes is like i would have just sailed in there and killed him right and so we have a very different kind of man in laertes than we have in hamlet but they both have the same quote unquote responsibility to their murdered fathers and so in being foils of each other they're not presented exactly the same in some ways laertes reminds me a lot of hot um, from 
from yeah. Henry the Fourth, like just kind of this like a man of action, not thoughtful. He's presented as very rash and he seems heroic to the casual, I think superficial kind of um, listener or or reader. But in digging under the surface, there's a there there is a rashness to Hotspur and a rashness to Laertes that's not thoughtful and leads them, I think, both into a realm of treachery that, is, that, that isn't true of either Prince Hal or of Hamlet. You know what that underscores so, so vividly for me is, is the diamond on, 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 what's black stuff? Diamond on? Coal? Coal. No. What, 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 what no. soft stuff? That <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. What do they put diamonds on in a, in a jewel case? Oh, like a yeah, piece of felt. That's good. So where Hamlet and Laertes differ the most is that Hamlet killed Laertes' father. Where they're the most the same is that they both love Laertes' sister. And when you get to that scene, did, did it, does it strike you as significant that that um, Claudius says these words to Hamlet to, to Laertes? just before Ophelia enters, okay, he says that I am guiltless of your father's death and am most sensibly in grief for it. It shall as level to your judgment peer as day does to your eye. And then Ophelia comes walking in just like she came walking in right when Hamlet is saying to be or not to be right. And and he never can finish his speech and, 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 He's distracted by Ophelia. And here, Laertes and Claudius are distracted by Ophelia. And Laertes says, let her come in. Apparently, they're trying to keep her from coming in this time. And he says, let her come in. And then and then he starts weeping, right? And and I'm so, what, impressed by, by the fact that both Hamlet and Laertes, well, it, in, in Act 5, it becomes a contest. Who is in more grief about the death of this girl? It's 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 <laughs> there, there's something so human about that. There's something inhuman about about Polonius, about how they handle Polonius. But there's something so human about how they handle Ophelia. And I'm not sure where that goes. I'm not sure what what the significance is. I'm just touched by it. Yeah. Yeah. There's but 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 there's matter in these sides. So explain it to me. Interpret it. <laughs> I'm going to wait until act five. Uh, yeah. I'm going to wait until act five, Andrew. But, 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 but those lines that, that queen Gertrude says about Ophelia, when she's drowned, we got to do something with that. Are we Let's gonna- read them. Let's read them. Let's close the show with them. Can we do that? Heidi? Sure. That sounds great. Just before you read this, Heidi, there's one comment or one question I want to ask. And it's, this is some of the most beautiful poetry in the whole play. Most romantic poetry, let's say, in the whole play. And, it, and the romantics use it all the time for their pictures. But I got to know, how does Gertrude know all of this? And if she knows of it, couldn't she have stopped it? I always, always wonder that. Always. And there's a line in this in this as you said, absolutely stunning, stunning poem. Um, And she says that Ophelia is as one incapable of her own distress. I don't know why that line isn't more famous. Mm. It's just so descriptive. I have often felt like that, incapable of my own distress. 
Like I, mm. I, I'm going to break like our, our question of the disillusion of the play, right? It all kind of converges in Ophelia's incapacity to bear her own suffering, right? And the play almost seems to feel that and groan underneath it, um, this existential suffering and this experiential suffering. Um, and I hate so, you ask this question, Heidi, but are you mm, are you saying disillusion or dissolution? Dissolution. Yep. Okay. I am not saying disillusion, but yeah, I I guess that would work too, but I really meant more dissolving, right? The dissolving. Yeah. Yeah. And that I think is your question of why, you know, why didn't what was up with the queen? How does she know it? And why didn't she stop it? Yeah. Um I don't know the answer to that, but I also think Gertrude is in the same boat, incapable of bearing her own distress. Um, And her solution is to throw herself into the arms of Claudius, right? Or maybe not. Maybe at this point she is on a trajectory of repentance who, you know, we don't know Um, as you brought up that possibility. Maybe she goes to her death redeemed or, in in repentance i don't know um but i would be happy to read this beautiful yeah let's close the podcast with these lines there is a willow grows a slant a brook that shows his hoar leaves in the glassy stream there with fantastic garlands did she come of crow flowers nettles daisies and long purples that liberal shepherds give a grosser name but our cold maids do dead men's fingers call them. There, on the pendant boughs, her coronet weeds clamoring to hang, an envious sliver broke, when down her weedy trophies and herself fell in the weeping brook. Her clothes spread wide and mermaid-like, a while they bore her up, which time she chanted snatches of old tunes as one incapable of her own distress, or like a creature native and endued unto that element. But long it could not be till that her garments, heavy with their drink, pulled the poor wretch from her melodious lay to muddy death. Alas, then she is drowned. Drowned, drowned. I want to thank everyone for joining us for Act 4. We will conclude Hamlet next week with Act 5 before our question and answer podcast. Thank you for joining us and please tune in for our final act next week. And happy reading. The name's Hamlet and I got a tale about madness less than a female. Dad's a ghost and he roams the floors. Looks at night and Elson got a pale face just like his paint. Normal, you know this ain't something. Is rotten up in Denmark a sick mistake. My Uncle Claudius is alibis Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 